Yet, um, if you assume that there's a higher volatility in the market, if you assume that there's um, more unpredictable development going on, if you assume that uh, the workforce has changed, um, people are becoming more mobile, have different preferences, if you assume this, I think strategy has become much more important these days. Welcome to the Aperture Podcast where we're in conversation with the people thinking and doing things differently. If you like it, please subscribe and also check out our other content on ApertureHub.co. For this episode, we are talking strategy. Our guest for this episode is Marcus Menz, who is Professor of Strategic Management and Vice Dean for Development of the School of Economics and Management at the University of Geneva. Marcus, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ben. How long have you been um, teaching in the area of strategy? Yeah, I've, I've been teaching in, in strategy for, for more than 10 years now. Okay. Um, I actually joined the University of Geneva in 2015. Um, so I'm now about four years um, there. Uh, before that, I was teaching uh, on the faculty of the University of St. Gallen. Um, I was teaching strategy there for six years. And before that, I spent a year at the Harvard Business School, uh, did research there. And prior to that, I did a PhD at the University of St. Gallen. Okay. I guess since you've been in the profession for 10 plus years, you, like us, um, have seen lots and lots of change in how strategy works. And... Maybe you could kick us off by just giving us some kind of definition of how you see strategy, how you would define it. I mean, strategy in, in general, I, I would still say is very much the same than, than 10 years ago, at least when it comes to the, um, let's say, more general definition. Um, uh, I, I can give you an, an idea of what I understand as strategy and what I usually um, uh, explain as being a strategy. Um, strategy is, is to me still, and there I refer back to, let's say, the old days of strategy to Michael Porter and others yep. who said strategy is about uh, making clear-cut choices. And uh, I think that's still um, true for today. Strategy is about making choices and it is about uh, deciding um, what to do as, as an organization, as a firm, and what not to do. And that's uh, the harder uh, part of that question, actually. And uh, to me, that's, um, that's still relevant, um, even though nowadays it may have changed uh, uh, how strategy is being done, uh, what the topics of strategy are about, and of course, um, also who is involved in strategy these days. But the core question to me is, is still the same of, question, uh, of, of strategy. It is about making choices and deciding um, where to compete, um, deciding how to compete and making choices where, where not to be active. And uh, this, this leads to, a, to, to, to what I would refer to as a fundamental um, uh, trade-off in, in, in strategy. And this is um, the trade-off between being strategic on the one hand and, and being opportunistic on the other hand. And yep. we're going to discuss this probably a bit further later on. But, but to me, that's you, very you, complicated. And do you think that line, is that where the line has changed in strategy? Because I think... The, yeah. way you de- the way Michael Porter defines strategy, the way you're defining strategy, yeah. uh, where it's about choices, and, and in particular the bit that people forget, choosing what not to do, yes. um, these, will, these are almost timeless concepts. Right? Th- this strategy defined like that will, will always be relevant. But, so I guess the question is more, in this 
sort of dichotomy between what is operational and what is really strategic. Mm. Is that where the line is changing? You know, the, mm. I guess another way to express it would be, is, is strategy becoming more about how to compete and less about where to compete? Mm. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating question to me. Um, and uh, what, what, um, what is relating to, to this question for me is the, the challenge to define what kind of time horizon strategy concerns. And yep. uh, um, well, traditionally, strategy is being defined as, as being concerned with the long term. And uh, Alfred Chandler said it's about uh, the development uh, of the company's long term goals um, and the subsequent allocation of resources to reach uh, those goals. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, this was done based on a study of, of industrial enterprises uh, back in the 1960s. Um, so um, it is, um, well, it is something that was true back then that strategy is concerned with the long term and what the long term means. I, I, I would say to me, strategy is still about um, making choices that matter for Yeah, for a certain um, time horizon. But the question is, what kind of time horizon do you consider? And that depends very much on uh, on the context you are in. And the context has changed, and and therefore also the time horizon of strategy has changed to me. But do you do you, yeah. do you subscribe to the view, therefore, that just simply planning horizons have shortened, or do you do you also believe that that companies can operate with more than one? Time horizon. I mean, the reason mm. we ask that is because mm. you know we, we're a big fan of this sort of zoom in, zoom out mm. Um, mm. theory of if you know you can plan on mm. uh, you can plan on a horizon of say five years or ten years when you're making very big decisions about product strategy, for example. But you are, um, but you, on a more operational basis, you're mm. you're maybe trying to optimize on a sort of nine to twelve month window. Um, mm -hmm. Which is, would you, you? So I guess the question is: Have time horizons shortened, or have they bifurcated, or, mm -hmm. or um, mm -hmm. duplicated, or yeah, or multiplied? Mm -hmm. I mean, referring to the first point, um, we do have evidence for that. The time horizons have generally shortened uh, yeah. of strategies. So um, we we did, for example. Um, Uh, regular studies um, where we surveyed chief strategy officers of the leading 500 uh, companies in Europe and uh, and those senior strategists indicated to us uh, over the um, past couple of years that the strategy horizons have shortened uh, from um, close to five years to yeah. a bit more than, than three years. Um, this was something that we could uh, figure out in our surveys. Um, um, but Of course, and, and uh, I, come, I come back to your second part um, in a minute, uh, but of course this very much depends on the context again. And, uh, and I think a decisive factor is still in what kind of um, industry sector you are in. So what is your investment horizon, for example? Um, um, are you in a software um, environment? Are you in an industrial uh, environment, for sure. example, or in a service uh, business? Um, so, so it's very and much and dependent your, on that. Does the data that you're referring to, um, do you see noticeable differences depending on the sector? Like, it does, do TMT companies have a shorter horizon than uh, yes, they manufacturing do. companies? Yes, they do. There is this variance across industry sectors, okay. uh, definitely. Um, so, so it depends on the industry sector. Um, and then the question is, and that's the second part of your question, um, well, are there different time horizons to consider? Um, from what I can see, um, I would say yes, and I would, I would say um, that a greater, um, um, a greater 
um, alignment or unification between operational tasks and short-term strategic or tactical um, decisions uh, um, has become visible. On the other hand, and, and that refers to the longer time horizon, I still see that, um, that there is um, a need for, for companies to have a long-term vision or, I mean, you, you could, you could um, uh, use vision as an analogy here for, for strategy, but I think that's still very decisive to decide where the company yeah. should, should be heading at, um, not just uh, over the next six to 12 months, but, but in the long term. Um, I mean, when, when, you, when you use this dichotomy, I mean, I'm of course uh, um, asking myself what is with the, um, with the time in between and, and how, to, how to operate um, b between those time windows. Um, and that's, that's a challenge that I see is to, to align the two. But it, yeah, I think, and I don't know if you have evidence but, but to this effect, but it seems, seems to us that, that, as you say, right, keeping a very long-term time horizon, keeping mm. strategy as a constant, the idea that the business model shouldn't mm. change every 12 months, mm. but, but the, the sort of execution part becomes a mm -hmm. rolling consideration. Mm -hmm. The, you know, and then the time horizons can be whatever you want them to be, but they just, that's yes. a rolling consideration yes. versus a constant that sits above it. Yes. Because you wouldn't want things like brand strategy, um, business model changing every day. No, yeah, no. But that, that's a bit the challenging, uh, challenging part here is to ensure that the rolling part, the, the operational part, doesn't uh, doesn't run across um, across your um, your long term uh, vision. And and what I see, for example, very often in organizations is that they, in larger organizations. Um, uh, is that they have um, two different uh, ways of doing strategy. The one is a classic strategic planning process uh, where yep. they have, I don't know, a three to five year um, uh, planning horizon window or, or even longer than that, depending on the industry. And then they have more this, well, which I would, well, I shouldn't say opportunistic, uh, but which I would uh, call maybe the, the more spontaneous uh, uh, strategy process, which builds on, on very specific strategic initiatives that they uh, launch depending on the opportunities that are arising and and they adapt those initiatives um, relatively um, fast and and those uh, two processes are usually um, aligned uh, yeah. but of course you, you need to ensure that that uh, that they stay aligned um, over the course of the development of the of the organization those those sort of longer term strategic planning exercises mm -hmm. I think we could argue whether they're becoming obsolete, but but you, I mean, it seems very much the case that um, that they're still happening, at least according to your research. Yes, um, at, at least when it comes to, to larger organizations, and and also when I talk to to, to startups, for example, or, or um, fast growing businesses, what I see is that they typically they have still this vision. I mean, it's not as explicitly formulated or articulated. I mean, yeah. they, they don't have necessarily a dedicated strategic planning process, but they the team has has a clear idea of where to go and yeah. uh, and what to focus on. And on the other hand, they usually are very good um, because of the scarce resources, uh, probably. Um, they are very good in prioritizing short-term activities. Um, so in, in, uh, in coming up with dedicated action plans where they prioritize, for example, the top three priorities over the next uh, couple of months or so. And, yep. and that's uh, different from very large uh, corporations uh, where you don't have typically those um, very specific uh, priorities defined at the, at the top level. Um, but I guess that leads on to the, to the questions that I wanted to ask you, which is to what extent have those strategic planning exercises evolved? Because, because clearly, you know, I mean, if you, 
I guess if we go back oh. 10 or 20 years, there would have been exercises yeah. that were carried out by a small number of executives, independently of the rest of the organization. And they would, mm-hmm. and, the, and, and the strategic objectives would have been passed top down, right? Mm-hmm. Very much as a directive, yeah. right? This is what the plan is for the next five years, three years, whatever the number, mm-hmm. the horizon was, go and execute. Mm. Have you seen a shift um, towards a model that's closer to the startup world that you're mm. talking about there, where more people are empowered to um, to develop strategy, and more people are 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 involved in the, or there's a better connection between the people who execute the strategy and the people who formulate the strategy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, there have been significant changes, I would say, also in the in the mindset of, of top management, um, how to do strategy. And uh, when you can consider a number of dimensions, for example, you can consider, first of all, why do you do strategy? This has changed. I mean, uh, it was um, uh, very often in the past, it was considered something necessary. I mean, I still remember when I uh, consulted 10 years ago, a, a company, um, a, a medium-sized company in Switzerland um, uh, that was um, asking me to develop a strategy with them uh, but basically it was a CEO he, who just wanted to have a written document um, yeah. uh, as a kind of a justification of, of what they were doing and uh, and so so this mindset I think has changed meanwhile um, meanwhile top management I don't know any company that, that doesn't consider uh, strategic choices as, as some in strategic priorities and, and are formulating them as, as something um, uh, unnecessary. So, so um, it's the opposite. They, they consider it quite important. And so the question is who, who is doing it and, and why? And, and the who, I mean, strategy has, has become much more inclusive. Um, that's what I see in, I mean, on, on average in, in organizations, uh, but particularly in um, also in organizations where in the past you wouldn't expect it uh, from. So, uh, so large industrials, for example, who, um, who do surveys of their employees who involve employees in strategy development exercises. So, so it seems to me it has taken um, maybe two or three decades that ideas that originated from IBM, for example, how to involve people in idea generation has, have, have finally spread uh, across uh, companies. And this is certainly supported by, by the startup movement we are seeing uh, globally that somehow infuses new ideas of who should be involved. And this doesn't uh, um, only include employees. It also includes uh, customers, suppliers, all kinds of stakeholders that were previously not necessarily considered in strategy exercise. I mean, strategy was something done in the boardroom uh, previously, but not involving everyone in the organization. And then the, the final aspect is the how-to. So, so the yep. tools that you would use. And and there, I mean, the, the, you would assume that there should be some, some more change there. But um, from what I see, the tools to do strategy, of course, some, some tools do facilitate those interactions of stakeholders, meanwhile. But, uh, but they're not necessarily that modern or novel strategy tools out there. So I see that very often companies are still relying on, let's say, traditional, you could also say old-fashioned strategy tools um, that uh, or were fine for for um, for a certain um, a certain era of strategy, but that are not necessarily useful um, for today's uh, environment. So you've raised at least two points there that we want to mm. drill down more into. The first one is really about the. F- purpose of the strategy team right because has the purpose of the strategy team changed from one that was charged with coming up with the strategy 
and overseeing the execution of that strategy to being one that coordinates the activities of a much larger group of stakeholders within the organization. And I, in, in answering that, it would be helpful mm. also if you could share some of your, some of the insights from the report that you published um, about the, uh, the consequences and determinants of strategy function size. Mm. So like, mm. are you seeing that basically in terms of how well staffed the strategy team is? Mm -hmm. For example, yeah, I mean, I mean, to start with, um, you, you referred to to the central strategy function in, in organizations, and um, and I would say that not necessarily the tasks or or general activities of those uh, strategy functions have changed a lot. Um, of course, um, they include some of the more um, more recent developments these days. For example. Um, Uh, coordinating uh, strategic initiatives across uh, the organization, uh, for example, um, overseeing sometimes uh, new business development. For example, sometimes you see that uh, venture, internal venture capital arms of, of companies are, are under the umbrella of the strategy function. Yep. Um, so, so those kind of activities have changed, but the, the core of their activity is still um, relatively um, relatively similar, uh, which includes um, well aspects referring to strategy development and aspects referring to strategy execution. Um, so on the development side, um, uh, the, the basic activity has changed, I would say, from uh, from organizing a formal strategic planning process every year yep. to, uh, to a more coordinative task, as you mentioned, to coordinate uh, between top management and, and middle management or even further down in the organization, uh, line employees, uh, coordinating horizontally. Um, this is something which is very frequently overlooked, horizontally between functions in the organization. So, for example, coordinating between marketing, uh, uh, procurement, uh, supply chain management uh, functions. Um, and coordinating internally versus externally. So yep. um, internal stakeholders, um, uh, for example, um, in product management and external stakeholders, customers that are relevant or key accounts of, of, the, of the organization. Um, so this has changed more on the on the strategic planning side. It's oftentimes still referred to as strategic planning, but it, it has become quite different um, how it is being done. On the other hand, the execution side um, yeah, is these days more concerned with strategic initiatives. It still concerns a lot of, um, of activities regarding um, how to how to how to um, execute the decision where to compete for example um, uh, it in includes decisions regarding mergers and acquisitions divestitures um, alliances um, that are under that umbrella so those are activities are are still the same but it has become a much more i would say a much more coordinative uh, function than it was uh, before on the subject of where yeah. to compete do you still think that's as relevant a question as it used to be because because if you if you subscribe to the basic notion that the world is moving mm. much faster mm. and also that with technology change in particular um the the clear boundaries between one industry and another industry are getting mm. blurred so is it is it really the job of the strategy team to continue to make those kinds of bets about where to play or is it much more about making sure that Your, the company's fit to play. So it has by that we mean has excellent has an excellent product, has an excellent or, or the, an optimized business model, and then has real organizational agility. Is that are they not the sort of competencies that are much more important than deciding 
uh, making big bets on where to play? That's a tough question. Uh, what I see is that um, at least when I look at the larger corporations, um, they still um, rely very much on, on uh, questions of um, where to compete. Uh, of course, those concern uh, the overall firm's uh, business model. So if you, for example, take uh, take recent examples of large industrial um, conglomerates in, in Europe, for example, take, take Siemens, uh, headquartered in Munich, um, what they want to become is a digital company. And yeah. they're um, trying to... Uh, reconsider the boundaries of their uh, business divisions in order to um, to develop this corporate, you could say, this corporate business model. But I, I still think that uh, that the central strategy function um, is concerned and should be concerned with questions of of the overall firm and not necessarily of the specific, uh, let's say, product specific business models, but rather the corporate business model. So why does it make sense to have the different uh, products under one umbrella? Why does it make sense to be in certain geographic markets active? And of course, if the market boundaries are blurring, if the product boundaries are blurring, this has consequences for, for the decisions that they make. But, but they should still be concerned with those uh, choices, because otherwise um, no one is in the organization. I think, uh, true, I think true, they are the yeah. only ones uh, really asking those questions besides the top management, uh, the central or group top management. Another question on the, how the strategy function yeah. within an organization may or may not be changing. Because clearly, as well as the speed of, of change accelerating, we're also living in a world where we have an abundance of information. I mean, it's, I think the, the amount of data that a strategy team works with today versus 10 or 20 years ago is exponentially larger. Is that helpful? Does that lead to more precise decision making? Or, or is it uh, um, in some ways a, a distraction? Do you think? Well, I think it should be helpful. It uh, should to lead to, to better decisions. Um, uh, but does it do so? That's, that's a question that I would, uh, where I would be a bit worried. Um, yeah. Uh, the amount of data is yep. there. Um, the question is how to deal with that data. And uh, and what I also observe, and this is something that, that also colleagues frequently uh, note, um, and I see the same uh, when it comes to, to data and, and information technology in organizations. Uh, very often, I mean, it's considered um, as something we, that, that must be done, that must be considered. But the question in the beginning should be, why, why do we need a certain data? Why do we need a certain technology? And, and this is something that is not necessarily uh, being asked. Um, so that's one, one aspect, one facet here, you could say. The other facet is when I look at large uh, organizations, multinationals, Sometimes uh, there are very smart strategists working in those organizations who see the need for um, developing new technology that supports eventually how to do strategy. But um, the need is not shared by, by everyone in top management. But this is about to change. Um, what I see now is that uh, the top management has, has uh, started pushing uh, uh, those topics as well. Is data helping them to make better informed decisions? Because there's so much risk involved in making these choices, the more that you can couch those choices in terms of data and demonstrate that it's a really well-formulated, informed decision is great. But I guess the, on the flip side, the more that you rely on data, the potentially the slower the decision-making comes. So do you, is that where the trade-off is? Is it between collecting the data to make an informed decision versus continuing to make very quick decisions that are required in, in a fast-moving environment? Mm. 
I don't think that this is necessarily a trade-off. I mean, it's a, it sounds to me like an excuse uh, that uh, that uh, executives probably oftentimes articulate because um, what I think uh, um, is required uh, is is a suitable technology and. Uh, and uh, the same applies actually when I discuss, um, for example, who to involve in a strategy process um, with company executives. Um, what they typically say is, yeah, of course, we would like to involve everyone, but we don't uh, have the necessary resources. Yep. But of course, you could rely on technology that facilitates this. And, uh, and I think you should start thinking about what kind of uh, technology is suitable to, to, to deal or, or manage this amount of data. Um, I, I don't think that there can be, uh, can be um, but, but too much data. So, yeah, okay, because yeah. I, I guess yeah. it was another way of forming, formulating the question, yeah. which is surely there's an optimal point at which, you know, with, once you've reached 80% level of conviction based on all the data you have, then, then making a decision there is preferable to waiting for 100% of the data because otherwise you're not first mover... I mean, the, the challenge for me would be not so much about the data here, but about the deci uh, about making the decision. And uh, I have the impression that uh, that many organizations rely on on, on these days, at least, um, on very good data. Um, yeah. Of yeah. course, you can always improve. I mean, but maybe they're close to the eighty percent already. Um, uh, but when it comes to the decision, the data is not necessarily um, considered. Um, and uh, got it. So you're saying you're saying it just becomes an excuse for people who are indecisive in the first place. Yes, it could be. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a bit worried about uh, taking a very rational view on uh, on on strategy, and I, I experienced, and therefore I also shifted part of my research focus towards uh, the individuals of who who actually do strategy. I experienced that. Um, that this is a very much, I mean, strategy is, is as much depending on the behavior of the individuals involved as, as it is on, on rational uh, choices. And uh, therefore, um, uh, yeah, we should be careful to, to only rely on data. But that's here my, um, my experience and, and view that I developed over the past couple of years. When, when it comes to decision making, with or without lots of data, organizations, strategy teams, CEOs are still relying on a lot of of these uh, tools and m models, are these same models and matrices still relevant? Because clearly one of the things that we've seen is in this, in this new era of kind of networks and ubiquitous computing, that the nature of st strategic advantage or competitive advantage is shifting, right? From, from way, way more from being about supply side economies of scale to being about demand side economies of scale. But most of these tools mm. still assume, right, that a company is optimizing its strategy and optimizing its chances of success based on internal resources and the resources that it could acquire or hire, right? So do you think the strategy profession has adequately adapted its tooling for this kind of new modern world mm -hmm. of, of, of networks and network effects? Well, let, let me start with a relatively mean saying, uh a fool with a tool is, is still a fool and uh, and i think uh, it's not so much about the tools the, the tools may facilitate uh, certain discussions they may visualize certain analysis but they're not certainly not uh, the most important aspect um, so, so that's just to, to start with um, i 
I, I do believe, however, that, that those tools may be valuable if, um, if applied uh, correctly. And, and correctly, I mean, first of all, that you need to consider whether the underlying assumptions of those tools um, are still applicable or still relevant. Um, and for example, if you take uh, Porter's Five Forces Framework, um, yep where you try to understand the competitive forces in, in an industry and uh, and potential and the threat of potential new entrants and what you could do uh, about it. The underlying assumption here is that you can clearly define an industry, right? And uh, and the industry boundaries have, have become much more blurred these days. Yep. So there you, you would see an example where it's probably difficult to apply the same tool in the same form these days. Another example is uh, is a BCG portfolio matrix um, where, where you try to map your businesses or you could say products you could also do it with um, geographic markets um, uh, along two dimensions the one is market growth and the other one is a relative competitive position and what you try to do is to get an overview of, of, of the activities of the organization and I think this is this can be still relevant um, if you find the right uh, criteria to, to define your markets, to define your products. Um, and, and for example, Google is still working with that matrix. So, so even a company that is considered for being at the forefront of, of the technology firms, um, one of the leading firms there is, is applying one of those more traditional uh, tools. Um, on the other hand, you're referring to the more demand-sided oriented tools. I, I strongly believe that there need to be more novel tools. Um, but of course, um, to come up with those tools requires also, um, at least uh, from an academic perspective, it requires some data um, about the underlying um, assumptions about uh, the firms or organizations that you consider. I mean, take, for example, Porter's yeah. Five Forces. This was developed on industrial enterprise in the 1970s, 80s, uh, 70s. Um, so we don't necessarily have the data yet to to, to develop those it's, tools. It's we, have, we have started doing it. Yeah, but, it's more, it's uh, more because yeah. um, so I think for me the port, the Porter's um, framework works very well for an established business. You know, like mm -hmm. you, you're relatively well established. Mm -hmm. um, what are the levers you could use to make this business mm -hmm. perform better? What are the potent, What are the potential threats coming? Mm -hmm. I still think all those things are mm -hmm. relevant as long as they're applied to an arena of. Of activity rather than a very narrowly defined market, but I think the question is more: if you know, if if we if we um, believe that network effects are of much greater importance than they were historically, you know, what strategic theory is there, for example, that tells a company you should maximize the number of users because that will trigger uh, mm -hmm. way more value for the ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Most models or, or matrices would probably want you to become as profitable as you could as quickly as possible, which would be in conflict probably with that aim of maximizing the number of users, for example. It, it could be in a way. Yeah. I mean, uh, you're referring more to, to, to the tension between... Uh, tension is what I was looking for, yeah. The tension between exploratory activities and, and more... Uh, uh, maybe exploitative activities or efficiency versus uh, versus growth, for example, and uh, and efficiency. I mean, yeah, many of those tools are definitely um, targeted towards improving efficiency of, of organizations, whereas relatively few are referring more to to the growth um, ideas. I mean, the ANSOF matrix you mentioned refers to it. Um, um, the portfolio matrix does partly. The problem, the problem for me, the problem yeah. with the ANSOF yeah. matrix is that. For me, it sort of implicitly assumes mass markets. You know, 
this idea that you mm. could just take a product and introduce it to another mass market. Or, mm. um, that's what's problematic about that. I think you're right. I think, I think you've, you've kind of redrawn the question or the reframe yes. about exploitation versus innovation. Well, or, that's because I, I think that takes us helpfully into the kind of like the second things, second mm. section that we want to talk about, which was mm. organizational design, because there, there are many um, ways in which to frame this question of organizational um, design. One might be, how do you ensure consistency and control versus autonomy and agility? But I, I agree with you. Another one might be, how do you ensure that you get maximum exploitation, maximum efficiency at the same mm. time as you allow the organization to continue to innovate mm. and you don't become subject to, to threats from much more innovative mm. players in your, in your market. So with those two kind of trade-offs or, or mm. in, in mind, what are your biggest learnings in terms of organizational design? L let, me, let me reply to your um, first trade-off, autonomy versus control, which is, uh, let's say, one of the very classic um, yeah. uh, trade-offs. Um, similar to this is also the classic distinction between differentiation and, and integration. Um, so, so you would associate autonomy with, uh, with increasing differentiation, whereas control with more coherent integration of the activities in an organization. Autonomy versus control is, is as you mentioned, uh, alone a, a huge topic um, and of course you can you can think about all kinds of structural or, or procedural solutions uh, that aim at resolving it I mean for example you could argue that there that you have a core business where you need to um, infuse more control whereas you have more um, let's say more innovative businesses where you would like to um, uh, have more autonomy and uh, and lead them separately if, if I really reflect on this um, I don't think that that companies should necessarily strive for control. They should, um, based on what I see these days, they should strive for keeping people in the organization, teams in the organization, as much autonomous as, as possible and, and infuse control only where absolutely necessary. Uh, I, I think that's true in, in a very general way. And um, and how do you achieve this? Um, well, of course, um, if you think about a, an organization with hundreds of thousands of, of employees, a huge uh, uh, enterprise, um, it's very difficult to achieve this um, solely by by infusing a certain formal organization structure. Um, what you need, uh, at least to, to, to me, are are three things. Um, based, I mean, again, very general things, uh, but as a starting point to, to think about it. Uh, the first one is, uh, is culture. Um, yep. You need to have a culture that allows this, um, this autonomy, um, that, um, that allows um, employees making their choices, um, make, that allows teams or, or units. Um, uh, think about a, a remote uh, subsidiary that allows a subsidiary to, to take choices and uh, without asking or, or getting back to headquarters. Um, and I guess the culture also allows for mistakes, right? Because if it's a much more experimental world we live in, Exactly. Yep. That, that would be another aspect of, yep. of culture. I mean, you, you need to be open to, um, to, to those um, mistakes. Um, the second aspect that it requires, and this is closely related, is the leadership. Um, yep. uh, and with leadership, I mean 
um, that you have um, a certain leadership style in the organization, that you have a certain um, development of, of leaders in the organization, that you have uh, certain characteristics towards leaders when you recruit people. Um, and when you look at highly successful organizations, um, what they care most about, uh, I mean, it is uh, about um, how, how people are, are led. Um, Uh, again, I can only um, refer to Google here, um, who, who became quite famous for for um, developing uh, um, based on, on on a huge amount of data, uh, developing um, um, guidelines how um, how um, people should be managed and, and led uh, in, in the firm. And uh, um, it's just one example of leadership. And, and the third uh, aspect, it is about. Uh, about the people in the organization. And uh, here I mean um, not only who you have in the organization, but it is about, um, about how do you empower the people. I mean, you cannot provide autonomy to, to everyone without uh, maybe educating or empowering the people to, to use this autonomy in a meaningful way. And, and uh, therefore, I strongly believe in order to have an, uh, an organization that uh, functions well, that, that wants to benefit from autonomy, you need to, have, um, you need to invest in the people um, who, who, are, uh, who are working with this autonomy. Uh, I experienced myself in organizations when I uh, talked to executives, when I advised organizations or, or educated exec executives in organizations, that um, sometimes the people in, on, in those organizations didn't want to have more autonomy because they had, uh, they had some fear, they had some, yeah. um, some, uh, some reluctance uh, that, that this would be something valuable for them. So you need to, to, uh, to make sure that they have the skills and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the ideas how to use this uh, autonomy. Slightly more provocative question. Does this all need to still be organized within the structure of a firm? If we, if we go back to um, a, a, a text that you probably teach undergraduates, you know, the Ronald Coase idea of the nature of the firm, and he argues firm is necessary because of very, very high transaction costs. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it makes sense to, to coordinate the activities of people within a a firm because otherwise it would cost so much time so much money each time to try to coordinate this if these people weren't under some sort of uh, common uh, control and common management is that s still the case or is that an antiquated notion you already provided part of the answer right um so uh, there are certain conditions these days um in the environment that have changed um, compared to, to the times when uh, when Coase came up with uh, with his seminal uh, uh, ideas and um, I mean the question is yes um, it is about transaction costs it is about um, should we organize um, activities within a hierarchy versus um, is the market more efficient um, uh, to do so and I think um, what happened in the second half of the 20th century um, there was a relatively um, strong movement towards um, hierarchies, um, meaning uh, firms, corporations, yep. um, whereas these days you see somehow um, somehow a different development. You see that uh, markets are uh, becoming more and more important again. Uh, take, for example, um, labor markets outside of, of companies. Take, for example, um, companies that offer um, 
uh, workforce for certain projects um, that, for example, uh, allow you to recruit um, uh, temporary management uh, capabilities. Um, so those are all examples that show you that, um, that there has been a shift um, more towards markets these days. And, and one of the reasons why it's, uh, why it's um, possible to, to um, uh, in economic terms at least, uh, to have this, um, this shift is um, that the transaction costs have, um, have, um, have shifted and um, it has become uh, much easier to, to communicate. Um, it has become much uh, uh, cheaper also to, to travel maybe yeah. um, th than it used to be. And, uh, and all those kind of things uh, have changed and, and the result is, and, and that's what we see also in our research is, um, the boundaries of organizations have uh, have blurred and and uh, have become less clear. Um, so and there are a, a number of trends um, associated with it. I mean, uh, think about open innovation. I mean, this is something where you where you involve customers, for example, in in, uh, in in your innovation processes. I mean, this requires that there is uh, some some communication. It, it it involves a blurring of the boundary of the firm. Uh, think about um, a temporary staff that you hire for for certain uh, priorities um, uh, peaks for example I mean this is something that requires um, a relatively weak boundary between the organization and uh, the market um, so so definitely um, I, I think organizations have changed um, do we still see a firm uh, here um, I think uh, yes um, firms will will still be relevant but they will change. Uh, maybe the core of, of such a, a legal entity will be relatively small in the future and there will be a subset, a network of, uh, of other legal entities surrounding this one and, uh, and supporting this one. So an ecosystem, uh, how it's referred to today. Do you also see examples of where companies break themselves up into much more cellular mm. structure? maybe to make themselves more agile, maybe also to make them easier to work with a network that dissolving themselves into smaller yeah. units? No, it's, it's, it's actually a quite fascinating question. Um, on the one hand, I mean, what you can observe these days is, um, is firms, organizations that have a size that never existed before. I yeah. mean, when you look at the largest companies these days, how, how huge those uh, companies are, on the one hand, uh, on the other hand, so you see those giant. On the other hand, um, you see uh, you see ways of new ways of organizing internally to 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 make it possible um, uh, to, to manage those giant firms. And and one of the one of the aspects is actually this um, uh, this modularization, you could say, or that that dispersion of activities um, in order to benefit from. Uh, from unique aspects um, at different locations and different areas, um, um, yeah. And what we did, we, we, we studied um, specifically the dispersion of, of headquarters um, internationally. And, and we were um, concerned with the question of why do companies actually uh, split up their headquarters and decide to have a dual headquarters, so two locations for the headquarter activities or more than two uh, locations. So uh, we refer to this as dispersed uh, headquarters. You could also say virtual headquarters. Yeah. Um, what, we're, what we were not concerned with was the question of whether they set up regional headquarters or not, because our definition of, head, of dispersed headquarters is differently. We're not 
saying that there need to be necessarily regional headquarters, but we say that there are central functions that benefit from unique uh, aspects in certain locations. For example, uh, that you have your legal entity um, as a corporation, as a multinational based in Geneva. Um, then you have your uh, maybe your finance function based in, uh, in London and, and split it also to, to New York because you want to be close to your external stakeholders, to yep. capital markets. Yep. Yep. And you have maybe your, um, your central IT function you have spread um, around the world with a, a very large center of uh, excellence maybe in uh, in Bangalore so that's um, that's one uh, one way of, of thinking about it and what we explored is why our companies are doing it and we observed for example that already and, and we relied on historical data here from colleagues and we observed that already in the late 1990s 50 percent of the companies in our sample it was a sample that covered um, Germany's and Netherlands um, uh, the UK and, and the US, um, that 50% uh, of those companies had dispersed headquarters. So more than just one location for their headquarters, even though it was referred to as a corporate headquarter. Um, and we explored why they are doing it and, and found that the strategy is def decisive that they have. Uh, and besides that, also the way how they um, how they interact with their businesses and functions in the organization uh, is decisive. So whether they have a more uh, central or, or a more decentral approach towards managing the functions in the organization. Um, at the same time, we, we found that, uh, or we asked ourselves, is this a good thing or not? And we discovered um, it's not necessarily a positive thing for companies to disperse those activities. I mean, it may pay, pay off in the long run, but we also saw that, um, that it decreases the cost effectiveness of, of the headquarters. Um, so it, incre it increases um, uh, the costs that you have because, I mean, it's again a trade-off. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, should you co-locate co activities at one location or should you uh, disperse activities? And because you, you might about, lose some cluster effects. And, yeah, yeah and, and you have communication costs between yeah. the various um, units. Think about a finance function that you split between New York and London and that has to coordinate with the legal entity in Geneva then it involves quite some uh, coordination costs um, here. Just um, So I want, to, I want to move, because we don't have long left, so I want to move on to the topic of, uh, of how education itself is changing. Just one last question. What's the aspect of strategy that you'd like, most like to debunk or, the, or a certain dogma that you think should be, should be debunked? That's a very tough question, uh, again. Um, what I consider... Um, really annoying is the questioning of strategy itself yeah which always and comes up yeah it's like you know, it, every, it every two months there's a is strategy dead yes exactly and that's yeah. that's something that i really don't understand and don't see because the essence of strategy is, as i said in the beginning of the podcast was it is about um about making choices for for a certain time horizon in order to be able to uh, to develop an organization, a company in a certain direction. And I think this is necessary for all organizations that you cannot deny the importance of, of a good strategy. Of course, what, what a good strategy is then can be debated, but, uh, but the existence or, or the need for a strategy shouldn't be debated at all. Would you argue that strategies become more, not less important with, with everything we've talked about? Well, it certainly would... not less important. Um, yeah. So to, to me, strategy is... Um, 
is, is something that is that is more relevant than ever. And if you if you think about, I mean, if you assume, uh, and I'm saying assume because we we don't have much evidence um, yet. Um, if you assume that there's a higher volatility in the market, if you assume that there's um, more unpredictable development going on, if you assume that uh, the workforce has changed, um, people are becoming more mobile, have different preferences. If you assume this. I think strategy has become much more important these days. I'm inclined to agree. And then what's the best way to teach strategy? So, and I, and I ask that, I guess, with two um, concepts in mind. The first one is, does it make sense to teach strategy in the abstract? Is it more important to teach the strategy in a more practical sense? Than it, than it was potentially in the past. And then the second part is, does it make sense for people to go to university for three years to learn strategy? Or is there, is there a way in which we can educate people faster in a way that's more liquid, more fluid, and doesn't involve them coming to a physical location every day for lectures? That's a risky question for me because uh, there's clearly still a disconnect between uh, how we are currently teaching strategy and how it should be taught ideally, uh, in, in, in my ideal um, understanding at least. Um, uh, referring to the first aspect of your question, I don't think um, that strategy should be taught in an abstract way. And I, I also think that this is not um, the case anymore at, at, um, at most business. Um, of course, you need, to, you need to understand the theoretical foundations of, of the core concepts. Um, it's still important to know what economies of scale are. It's still important to, to uh, as it is, for example, to know what network, uh, network effects are and how network economies work. Um, but it is uh, still relevant to, to understand those theoretical underpinnings. It's still relevant to know the various concepts and frameworks and tools. But it is as important to be able to apply those uh, tools. And, and just to give you an example, what, what we are doing is um, we, we let students in the first year um, of their undergrads not just uh, uh, learn those management tools or strategy tools, but they also have to come up uh, with business plans, with ideas um, for concrete businesses where they use those tools for and, and develop something based on the analysis, uh, building on those tools. Um, that's just one example. Or another example, I, I work with companies uh, where we design executive education uh, management development programs. And there we usually have, have, a, have a mix, um, a blend of, um, of some input from, uh, from myself on, on the various tools, recent developments, as well as we have um, a lot of group work on concrete projects that they will be um, pursuing later on in their organizations. So that's um, something that, um, where we incorporate the actual doing of strategy um, in, in how we teach strategy. Um, the second aspect refers to the classroom. still think it's, uh, it's necessary to have, I mean, when, when you consider um, a program on management and business administration that, that three years are, are necessary. Uh, for strategy alone, I wouldn't see uh, s such a huge uh, amount of time. Um, what we do see um, at the same time is more, more on an executive education level is that there is increasing uh, demand for uh, for shorter executive educations rather than the classic um, executive MBA or full-time MBA programs. So we do see that um, that 
uh, executives, um, aspiring executives, that they are looking more towards topic-oriented uh, short-term programs um, like uh, three to four day programs or uh, regular online interventions where they can uh, learn on specific topics. Um, uh, for example, um, think about a uh, program that uh, develops um, aspiring uh, board members um, uh, in, in the area of digital topics. Um, so that would be a more specific um, uh, education rather than a uh, full-fledged um, executive MBA program. So and it was unfair of me to position that as either or, because I know in your mm. case, there's a lot of blended classroom and, uh, and yes. uh, online learning and so on. Online learning, does, is that as effective as classroom teaching in, in your experience? I mean, there are pros and cons. Um, yeah. um, when it comes to those two formats, I experienced myself that uh, that online learning can be um, quite effective, um, particularly as it allows participants to, to or students to reflect more, um, to uh, digest uh, the information, the material uh, in, in greater depth, as it is uh, the case um, with, with, or sometimes the case at least, uh, with uh, in-class uh, formats. Um, what I also experienced is, and, and I did this myself a couple of times, um, uh, direct uh, interaction um, can be can be very valuable when applied in an online format, um, uh, which is not um, as feasible in, in an in-class uh, format. So there are advantages of online learning. Of course, there are also disadvantages. Students frequently uh, mention the difficulty uh, of, of having a uh, an engaging uh, class discussion online. Of course, it is uh, possible um, with today's technology, but on the other hand, it's very difficult to uh, to convey a certain uh, spirit or atmosphere um, through uh, through online communication tools. And do you believe that the institutions like yours are adapting? quick enough or do you believe you're also at risk of some sort of Clayton Christensen type disruption? Hopefully, uh, hopefully we are. I'm, uh, I'm, I am confident um, because I see some, some uh, relevance of, of an institution like ours. Um, uh, if you take the University of Geneva as a whole or, or the business school, um, the Geneva School of Economics and Management specifically, I think um, there are um, certain facets of an institution like ours that make us um, unique um, compared, for example, to a, to a standardized online offering or even compared to a uh, to, to another private business school. And this is, um, of course, um, first of all, um, it is um, uh, a stimulating environment in which we are in. I mean, uh, it's not only about uh, faculty um, uh, educating uh, uh, or teaching uh, students. It is about uh, interactions between students. It is about interactions between students and, and alumni, for example. And, and the university serves as, as a facilitator of, of those interactions. And, and those are live interactions in person. And I think those are uh, still the interactions that, uh, that um, matter more than, than just uh, the online uh, or virtual interactions. And secondly, I, I think we, we have... Um, we have a dedicated faculty that um, that is very well known globally for their um, rigorous research, and 
And so we not just teach uh, or, or, um, or convey knowledge, but we also create knowledge. So we try to come up with insights that are uh, unique and, and uh, at the forefront of our fields. And uh, we try to use this knowledge also to lead our teaching. And, uh, and I think this is also something that, uh, that uh, prevents us from, from becoming irrelevant, uh, as, as some colleagues uh, claim these days. So I'm going to ask you the same question again, but just about academia. Is there an aspect of academia that you find really frustrating um, that you would like to jettison or some aspect of academia that you find overly formalized that you'd like to do away with? For example, the nature of academic text. What you say is very interesting, the way you say it's very inaccessible to the lay person. Uh, that's again a very tough but also to, to, to me very interesting uh, question. I mean you could also rephrase the question and ask um, what would be the one thing you would like to change about uh, about your um, profession and uh, and I think personally if I think about academia in management specifically not not uh, I'm not speaking about other disciplines that I'm not that familiar with but uh, but about management uh, as an academic discipline you could also um, sometimes include economics here, um, but but management uh, in, in general. Um, I would say um, there has been an increasing divide between um, between the academic world and uh, and the world that some refer to as the real world, uh, the world of practice and uh, and and of. Um, of those to to whom academics should actually uh, contribute to, and uh, and the, the difficulty here is that um, some um, some of my colleagues, I'm, I'm not saying all of my colleagues, but some of my colleagues clearly focus on on their research, on their fundamental research, um, uh, without considering uh, its relevance, and and that's to me relatively risky because I think uh, we are serving one purpose, and this is uh, improving. Um, how organizations um, work, how organizations are, are being led, being managed uh, these days. And, and if we are not concerned at all um, with the relevance of the questions, which can be very specific, uh, tiny questions that um, are not necessarily important for uh, the executives running those organizations, this is a huge risk because they're, um, they're is a risk of a further di disconnect between uh, academia and and the questions that are being uh, being studied and the questions that matter for um, for executives and uh, and managers in the real world. And should it be easier for business people to become academics in this field in particular? It's one where if expertise comes from from being a practitioner, then it would be good to blur the lines between practitioner and practitioner and educator. No? Yes, exactly. It would be it would be great if there would be a greater um, collaboration, for example, or yep. greater interaction. Uh, just to give you an example, I mean, I I usually get my research questions uh, that I study then from conversations with practitioners um, or from uh, from newspapers, um, articles in uh, in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, or wherever. Um, so I, I see certain phenomena going on, and I, I then think myself, okay, how can I uh, how can I understand those phenomena uh, better? But I also have many, many colleagues um, who who uh, look into the academic um, body of literature and ask themselves, okay, how can I 
and, and that's a, their starting point. How can I contribute to this academic conversation uh, without necessarily considering that this conversation is is actually something that is currently relevant uh, for for organizations? And uh, but, but of course, coming back to your question, I mean, there needs to be closer collaboration for sure. Yeah. Uh, there needs to be more interaction, and uh, and maybe also um, also more. Um, more diverse um, backgrounds of academics working on uh, or studying those uh, those topics. Um, uh, the, the most fascinating uh, studies that I oftentimes see uh, from colleagues are, are those of, of colleagues who uh, who had a different career before they uh, actually entered uh, the academic profession. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is quite difficult to make this career change, but this is something that is clearly uh, enriching this um, this conversation. Okay, just before we leave, so we're gonna we're gonna tweet out the links to some of uh, the research, some of your research that we've we've alluded to during the conversation. Um, any any anything particularly like you'd like to highlight to our audience? Any blogs, journals, or anything that you think for those people who's super interested in strategy, they might want to look into? Yeah, I, I still think that um, that that some of the more um, more classic um, practitioner-oriented outlets like Harvard Business Review, yep. Sloan Management Review, or even the McKinsey Quarterly are uh, are, are still very valuable sources uh, for getting an overview on a, on a specific uh, topic or a specific aspect. Uh, I would also recommend um, your audience to, to, to get directly in, in touch with academics if they're interested in certain topic areas. I mean, they see oftentimes, for example, um, what, what kind of uh, areas of expertise an academic have on their web pages and, and simply reaching out to them is, uh, doesn't cost anything and it oftentimes provides them with some valuable input. And uh, academics are usually very, um, very open to share um, their insights and learnings on a specific topic um, so that would be an advice uh, that I would uh, like to share here and if if anybody wants to contact you how, how do they do so uh, well the topics that I'm focusing on uh, are, are these days um, primarily corporate strategy still um, uh, topics uh, referring to corporate headquarters centralization decentralization and the organization of top management teams uh, boards of directors um, so corporate governance questions as well um, and uh, uh, one question that I would like to particularly highlight that I'm currently concerned with is understanding how how to do strategy in a way um, that keeps up with the modern development, uh, both in terms of um, of changes in the environment, but also um, uh, keeping in mind the technology, and uh, that builds on uh, and, and copes with this uh, complexity, uh, but at the on the other side, uh, simplifies doing strategy. And if you have examples regarding that, I would be very happy to, to learn about them and to discuss with you uh, how to maybe generalize and further improve those strategy processes. And if they if they do, they should reach out to you through LinkedIn or your email? Uh, or yes, I, I am uh, um, fairly active on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, yeah. And I do have an email address, um, marcus.mens at uh, uni.ge. Uh, dot ch great marcus thank you very much indeed so if i think if i were to conclude it would be that the nature of strategy both in the way that it's taught and the way it's executed are changing but strategy is more relevant than ever so marcus thank you very much for your time thank you very much for having me ben 